Welcome to another edition of John Talks. This time I have the pleasure of being joined by my buddy Brian Fonseca. His new book, Hidalgo Heights, The Victims Are Taking Up Space, is available on Amazon now. And I'll put the link in the description. Be sure to buy it, read it, and review it. And we'll get to Brian in a bit. I want to try something new with these pods, um, especially because this interview is not that long. It's about 35 to 45 minutes. So don't quote me on the exact number, but uh, just wanted to give some thoughts because at the end of the day, um, I want some of these things uh, to be on the record and to be said to all of you who have been loyal enough to listen. And the one thing that I really want to comment on is baseball's latest cheating scandal. And no, it's not the Houston Astros. It's not the repeat PED and steroid users. It just seems like baseball is dodging crisis after crisis, like those two that we just mentioned. But the latest one now, and I don't even know what to call it. We could just call it the sticky stuff scandal. And that's basically pitchers using foreign substances on the balls that they're about to throw to the plate to increase their RPMs and increase the spin rate. Now, Sports Illustrated came out with an article last week about it, and the headline and the quote was, this should be the biggest scandal in sports. And I don't see how it's not the biggest scandal in baseball. Now, not in baseball history. You've got the Black Sox, Pete Rose, the Houston Astros. But I do think that this is an issue. And if you remember, it was SI that also reported that half the league was on steroids and other PEDs back in the late 90s. And you just sort of get that sense that that's where we're going to right now. Now, of course, baseball responded, but that was after 1998 with Sosa and McGuire. And then Barry Bonds broke the home run record in 2001. The Mitchell report came out. So baseball has developed harsher penalties for the PED users. And don't get me wrong, there are still users, D. Gordon, Robinson Cano, that have been found, Nelson Cruz, Johnny Peralta. But I'm curious to see how baseball responds to this. Because if this problem is, as the quote is in the article, where, quote, 80 to 90% of pitchers are using some sort of foreign substance, then baseball needs to come down hard. And they need to come down hard on these alleged users. You know, we're, we're seeing, saw it on Twitter yesterday, uh, somebody accused Jacob deGrom of... Uh, of using a foreign substance because he went to his belt and then he went to his glove. Um, and then somebody also had uh, a corresponding video from 2014 where it seemed to be that's just his tick after a strikeout where he'll grab his belt and then he'll grab his glove. I don't know what it is. I also can't say for a fact that Jacob deGrom has never used a foreign substance because I just don't know. And I don't know that about any pitcher. Having said that, though, when you look at Trevor Bauer and you look at Garrett Cole and you see the differences in RPM since this article came out, it does not look good. I'm not accusing them of anything, even though Trevor Bauer has come out and said that he's used it in a game, and he has alluded to the Astros using it in the past with Colin McHugh, and I think it was Lance McCullers he also got in the act on with that as well. And, God, Trevor Bauer is just something else. And this is where it goes to my dilemma. So say what you want about Trevor Bauer, but he is a lightning rod. And I don't want to say he's a lightning rod of controversy because he's not that because I think at his heart, he's trying to grow baseball and he's trying to do the best that he can the way that he knows how to. Now, granted, I watch the vlogs and there are some that I like and there are some that I don't like. Uh, they're certainly better than Trevor Mays. I apologize, but Trevor May, oh my God. Can you think of a more boring vlog than Trevor May? Because it's just a montage of a guy stretching and running all day. And I digress, but my point is, if Trevor May told me, hey, before every game I stretch and then I run and then I get ready around 8.30 for my eighth inning appearance, I would believe you. I don't need to watch a nine-minute video of that. So there's that. But anyway, going back to Trevor Bauer, and this is where baseball is going to have the dilemma. So baseball wants to grow the game to a younger audience, and they're going to need Trevor Bauer to do so, just like baseball needed Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa to get back after the strike and to be the national pastime like it was. But 
You've got a great personality in Trevor Bauer, right? There are other MLB YouTubers out there. Now, it's hypocritical, right, for baseball to suspend player X and let's say a player like Trevor Bauer is using a foreign substance, or we'll just use Bauer for the example, and I hate to throw his name under the bus, but they find that Bauer is guilty as well as some quadruple-A player, and they suspend the quadruple-A player and give Bauer a slap on the wrist because he's growing the game or he's attempting to grow the game. Now, I can't imagine that Bauer is liked in the office, um, but he certainly creates a buzz and he gets people talking about baseball. And I think at the end of the day, any publicity is good publicity. Because I think I think that's desperately what baseball needs now, especially now with the NBA playoffs going on, the NHL playoffs. Uh, football is a 24-7, 365 sport. I know that baseball takes over in the summer. But I'll tell you one thing, the NHL playoffs are compelling and they're not going to get the ratings that baseball gets, and I understand that. But the casual baseball fan, after following the NBA playoffs for so long and following the NFL draft and following the combine, starts to get back into baseball now. And if you've got some of your stars that are suspended, like a Garrett Cole, like Trevor Bauer, then... At the end of the day, you're hurting yourself. But rules are rules. And you can't use foreign substances. And I know that there's rosin on the mound. Players, they're playing in the summer, directly under the sun, a majority of day games in the summer, weekends and the getaway days. So, of course, you're going to have rosin on your hands because you've got the rosin bag on the mound and then you've got whatever sunscreen, bug spray. And that's where players, that's where they tow the line. That's where they tow the gray area. And I think, I think what baseball needs to do is they need to create some secret, covert, independent commission. They have to get the facts. They have to find out who's doing it. And then you play the percentages. Because if you're finding out that, in fact, 80 to 90% of pitchers are using a foreign substance that has been banned, then what you have to do is you have to create harsh penalties like you did for the PED users. And I think that baseline is a good baseline because it's harsh, but it's fair. So, for instance, first... First offense is 50 games. Second is a full season. And the third is a lifetime ban. Three strikes and you're out. I think that's the best way to get out of it. But if you've got maybe 1% of players, 2% of players that are using it, I think you could still be harsh on them. And I know it doesn't sound right because I just said 20 seconds ago, rules are rules. But at the end of the day, it's still going to hurt your fan base. It's going to hurt casual fans that are looking for stars to latch onto. It's an event here in New York City to watch Jacob DeGrom pitch every five days, whether you're at the ballpark or watching at home. Same thing with Garrett Cole. And it would be a shame if baseball had to suspend one of these guys. But I think to prove a point, you then have to sacrifice one of your big-time stars. And that's where it gets tricky. So I'm for the independent commission, some covert type thing, maybe give everybody a slap on the wrist and then starting from, let's say July 1st, or even however long it takes, starting from August 1st, you have to ban those substances and you have to put those um, punitive measures in place. And then that way, baseball could come out and say, we did this investigation, we found X amount of Players were using it. These are now the penalties. And it's time to get this out of our sport. Because if you do that, you're keeping your stars in the game. They know that they have to get rid of the foreign substances. They know that they can't cheat anymore. It's a slap on the wrist. But they, at the end of the day, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is a country that's full of second chances. And everybody deserves a second chance. And I think for these players to be doing something that if it is true that 
managers say that everyone is doing, then get it out of the sport. And then we'll see who's who. We'll see what type of pitcher is who. Is Trevor Bauer this Cy Young Award winner? Is Garrett Cole a guy who is a Cy Young Award candidate? Or is he, are they not? Are they just depending on the foreign substances? We'll find out. Same with Jacob deGrom. Same with other players. Giovanni Gallegos, as well as the Cardinals, had his hat confiscated a few weeks ago. And I think that the way that Joe West handled it, and this is where I'm going to compliment Joe West, I think Joe West handled it in a very professional manner in that he asked Gallegos to take his hat off, to switch his hat, and he wasn't going to throw him out of the game. But the other measure is he now has to give that hat to MLB's compliance officer. And if they find any foreign substances that have been banned, then Gallegos deserves to be suspended or a fine, or there needs to be some punitive measure there. But the thing where it gets blown out of proportion is Mike Schilt goes nuts, gets ejected, and then rambles on in his post-game press conference. And who knows? Schilt could have had it out for West, could have been a hot day. Who knows? There could have been a groundswell of reasoning as to why he acted that way. But I think that's what you have to do for baseball. I think you kind of have to look the other way while this investigation's going on and then come down hard on anybody who, after a set date, is still cheating. Baseball condemned the use of steroids in the early 2000s, and you still had your steroid users. You think it was good for baseball to suspend Alex Rodriguez? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Love the guy, hate the guy. You need Alex Rodriguez in baseball, especially now. And you need players like that, that can be a lightning rod, that are divas, that do command the attention and back it up with their play. Now, baseball gave A-Rod multiple opportunities to accept the suspension in which he ultimately did. But I think, and, and this is going to sound hypocritical of me, I think you just have to turn the blind eye and then afterwards come down with those harsh penalties. So that's my feeling on this whole scandal. It doesn't look good. It doesn't sound good. It has the remnants of the late 90s where they mentioned the rampant use of steroids and other performance-enhancing drugs. And I think we could be going in that direction if baseball doesn't step in. And it's not just that. You know, I understand that the home run chase livened baseball again after the strike. But look at 2019, for example, or even the last four seasons when home runs went up and up and up and up. Fans hated it. And I wonder why. And there's always times where I wonder why. Because I'll just say it, as a kid, I was impressionable. Watching a roided up Sammy Sosa hit home runs in the home run derby that almost hit the roof at then Miller Park was exciting. They were moonshots. And I think around circa 2018, 2019, you're getting home runs that are just going over the fence. You're getting a lot more cheaper home runs. You're getting pitchers that are making good pitches and it's just going over the fence. So fans don't want the amount of home runs that they're getting. I mean, Brett Gardner had 28 home runs a few years ago. Are you kidding me? Brett Gardner is a good player. Brett Gardner deserves some sort of day when he retires for the Yankees. I'm not, I'm not going to go out there and say he's an all-time great, but he's been there long enough. Maybe you give him like some longstanding participation trophy. I, I don't know. I don't know what you do with Brett Gardner. But the point is, you can't have guys like Brett Gardner hitting 28 home runs in a year. That cannot happen. Absolutely cannot happen. And it wasn't just Gardner. There were other players out there, too, that were hitting home runs. Um, well above what their career average home runs were. Then baseball deadens the ball. And now because the pitchers are so good and allegedly 80 to 90% of them are using foreign substances, it's just so hard to hit. And I think we saw that with the no hitters, the barrage of no hitters, how tough baseball actually can be for hitters and how tough of a sport it is. And obviously it's not easy to pitch a no-hitter. And I think the thing with the no-hitter too, and I know that I'm digressing with this, but you've got Wade Miley pitching a no-hitter and then Twitter and the whole baseball universe goes into an uproar. And it's like, oh, well, if Wade Miley's pitching a no-hitter, then it's a problem. Give the guy credit. I mean, how many elite pitchers did not throw a no-hitter? Pedro Martinez never threw a no-hitter. He was the best pitcher of a generation in the steroid era. But Homer Bailey has two. You know, go figure. So just to go back to the point, baseball needs to step in. 
They need to address this if they haven't already. Give the players a date. Give the players that you find that were using it a slap on the wrist, some undisclosed fine. Players don't like giving up money if they don't have to. And then going forward, you try and find a balance to where you can have a balanced postseason and you can have great memories. Because over the last few years, we really haven't had great postseason moments. There's been a few, but not many. And I know that baseball playoffs are always tense. You usually get the best pitching performances, but you also see a lot of quick hooks. I'm not a fan of the bullpenning, especially with what the Rays did last year in game six of the World Series. But you want to have your hitters have a chance too. And as much as your pitchers can carry you, I don't believe that if you give them the use of this foreign substance, as well as probably pitching in cold weather, then it's just not going to look good for the hitters who already have trouble hitting in these environments. So that's my whole spiel on the latest baseball um, potential scandal that I don't believe is going to go away anytime soon unless baseball steps in and we'll find out with that. But like I said, we've got a good guest today. Brian Fonseca is an award-winning content creator. He's a writer for Deadspin and a producer as well. He's also a new author. His book, Hidalgo Heights, The Victims Are Taking Up Space, is available on Amazon now. I put the link in the description. Be sure to buy it, read it, review it. We talked to Brian about the book, boxing, and how media is consumed today. So with that said, let's get to Brian. My first question to you is, how many followers do you need to have to be a good boxer? <laughs> um, like seven figures, six figures? I was going to say 13 million or whatever, I, I okay. guess I guess is the way now, as opposed to some of the actual boxers that I follow who have uh, less than you or I do, but you know, they're, they're, in, you know, they're building, they're in a process of actually building something, their brand, their careers, and more importantly, just getting good at what they do. But apparently that doesn't matter as much anymore these days, huh? <laughs> is, is Logan Paul good? Like I understand the Nate Robinson was a stunt and like good for him. And he knocked him out. Yeah. Floyd Mayweather is one of the best of all time and yeah. he held his own. So having said that, what is your what does the eye test tell you about him? I mean, he lost to KSI, who's another YouTuber. So <laughs> I think he was oh one and one or something like that, or oh and two. I don't know. But he no, to answer your question. I mean, like he like he can beat up the average person. You know what I mean? Like if if I went up to somebody else who's roughly his same size and put on a pair of boxing gloves and he has no experience, and yeah, Logan Paul could probably take him, but you know, like people are making this big deal, like, oh, Floyd should have knocked him out. Floyd should have knocked him out. And I, while I would have loved to have seen that, it's like it, it was an exhibition that Floyd clearly didn't take seriously at all. Like all he was doing was just trying not to get hit, which is what he's done throughout the course of his career better than just about anybody else. And uh, like I, at the end of it, I'm like, I, I really just watched that on a Sunday night. Like I really just sat. And watch that. And I see, you know what I mean? On a Sunday night, like usually the big fights are on Saturdays. Right. And sometimes you get really good ones on Fridays. Sunday usually never happens except for the afternoon. So, I, I yeah, I, I mean, look, Showtime, I'm sure, made a lot of money off of this. So shout out to them. Jesus and Miro were good. They're always great. I mean, yeah, it, it was. It was it, <laughs> look, I, I, they're the biggest winners from yesterday. Because right. they they got to like not they didn't need the massive platform because we know like you know if you don't now they're at the point where if you don't know who Jesus and Mirror are then I, I I don't know what to tell you but like in terms of the best performance of the night uh other than probably Badu Jack who won one of the actual fights last night yeah Jesus and Mero won that absolutely love those guys absolutely yeah. love those guys um I'm trying to I mean you would know more than I do. When's the last time Floyd actually knocked out somebody? Not TKO, like canvas, head to the canvas. It's been the forever. Last, the last time, I mean, he beat up that, um, I don't remember the dude's name, but the Japanese kickboxer who was much smaller than him, uh, he just like destroyed him in one round. And it wasn't like a real fight. It was also an exhibition or something like that to some degree. Um, and I know toward the end of his career, 
there were a lot of decisions. Like I even joked last night when we were all watching this, I guess as a family, I was tweeting out like, you know, Floyd Mayweather would box a JBL speaker to a decision because that's just what he does. He's just not somebody who goes for the knockout. Like I remember when he beat the hell out of Arturo Gatti in uh, what was that? 2005. They were billing that as thunder versus lightning. And clearly the lightning won because that was one of the best and most embarrassing uh, showings that I've seen from a guy who lost. Now I'm looking this up. Well, technically his last uh, TKO victory was the Conor McGregor one. Now, if you're looking for an actual knockout, uh, that would be Victor Ortiz, which was, oh my God, 10 years ago. And I remember this Victor Ortiz, like, uh, you know, was, was he, he like got very excited and headbutted him by accident and tried to like apologize or whatever the, and the, they were separated very briefly, but then they were allowed to continue. And then Mayweather just like what people thought sucker punched them, but no Mayweather is like, Oh, you can get hit. All right, I'm gonna hit you right here. Right. I still love the Zab Judah fight. Like when I was a kid. So when I was a kid, my dad never wanted to purchase pay per view, but my cousin came over with her husband, and they wanted to watch the fight that night. So they suckered my dad into buying pay per view, which my dad pressed the button twice, which was a no no in like 2005, 2006. So he bought it twice. Um, but yeah, I just remember Zu- uh, Judah going below the belt. Floyd Mayweather, uh, his father comes in, yeah, like, and there was a whole. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. I was like, I wish every boxing fight was like this. But I was trying to akin last night's fight to like, because my girlfriend was asking me like, well, what would you consider this fight like? I was like, it's like Rocky Five, where like Floyd is not Floyd anymore, but he could beat up like this average Joe, but. Logan Paul's never going to be Tommy Gunn. Like, I might just be way off, and I might just be feeling myself on that. But I thought, like, Rocky Five was more entertaining than what we saw last night. And I don't know if you agree, disagree, but you know what? At the end of the day, we all watched, so they yeah. ended up winning. And I think, like, boxing ultimately wins from last night, even if the product is not, I don't know, put two, uh, put two names out there that deserve to be, you know, Saturday night billing. Yeah, I mean, this is something we're going to continue to see. So, I mean, look, everyone's going to lean into it because there's evidently so much money in it. Uh, This is not going to happen with MMA. I don't think you're going to see people (laughs) trying to actually compete against actual mixed martial artists in that form of combat because that is something that you can't – like, boxing is different because everybody, you know – with, you know, save for like a, something very debilitating or injury or, you know, just a, a, a defect in your body, everybody can throw punches. So that's something like fundamentally like you'll be able to do. Not everyone has a jujitsu background. Not everyone can wrestle. Not everyone can throw a, uh, an astute leg kick. So you're not going to see that happen in MMA. I will say that. But in boxing, I mean, I think, you know, is the formula I was listening to Bill Simmons talk about this earlier, like is the formula going to be you get celebrities in the main event, these, you know, just sort of like uh, carnival fests or whatever, for lack of a better way of, of calling it. And you have like the actual fights leading up to it because last night, actually, you know, you're talking about the first fight featured Chad Johnson, Chad Ochocinco, uh, who lasted all four rounds and got knocked down at the end uh, against a dude that even I've never heard of, who's apparently a bare knuckle boxer who boxed or whatever. But, I, you know, on the surface, the fight that kind of made a lot of sense, which was entertaining. And then you had two actual fights where Luis Arias uh, upsets um, uh, freaking Jared Hurd, who was a former unified champion in his weight class. And Luis Arias is somebody who took Daniel Jacobs the distance before. And he scored an, a shocking, a shocking upset uh, split decision where he was at one point a minus 1500 favorite. And then you have the Badu Jack knockout. And then you get on to what everyone came to see. The casual fan came to see Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul. And I'm like, yeah, this is actually a formula that makes a lot of sense. So if that were something that helps boxing, then you know, I, I, I mean, you know, evidently having all the boxers fight each other is not working enough. So <laughs> whatever, try something. I don't know. Well, and that's what I was going to ask you. The last time that you came on the pod, we talked about how boxing can get back to what it was in the 70s and 80s and 
I remember you mentioning, well, a lot of it has to do with the executives, network executives, and who can go where. And Not much has changed. <laughs> right. But, okay, let's say we get these big names out there, these two prime boxers out there. As a casual boxing fan, what more do you have to do to rope them in? Right? Because, like you said, yeah, maybe you need the celebrity billing at the top, like Logan Paul, like Chad Ochocinco. But at the same time, like a casual boxing fan is just expecting somebody to get knocked out. They'll get that in MMA. They don't necessarily get that in boxing. And you know this more than I do. Floyd Mayweather is wonderful because he doesn't knock people out. He's all dodge and duck and, you know, the five D's of dodgeball, but he's made that an art form and how good he's been. So it's like, how do you improve in that area? Or is that just beyond salvation? It's, they need to do a better job of sharing the stories of these fighters because now we're in an age where people care about the people more than the actual, you know, art form or whatever it is they're doing. Like people get invested in Trey young, not because he's a great basketball player and people are just realizing this or whatever. They're really in on him now because he's embracing the villain role. And he just so happens to have done it against the Knicks. And it looks like he's going to do it against the Phil, uh, the Sixers. You're talking about, a New York City fan base and a Philadelphia fan base where this guy is going to be hated, therefore is going going forward, going to be one of the most hated players in the Northeast region uh, and potentially the entire NBA as a result because, you know, the way he draws fouls and things of that nature. In boxing, one of the big underrated issues that they have, like we can talk about executives and things of that nature. And I know this from experiencing it in my own career. It's like trying to cover boxing is a mission at certain places. The big outlets do it in a very simplistic and minimalist way. The in-between ones who could really take advantage of it and get the access to it don't capitalize on that because it doesn't get enough views. And then you're left with the boxing-specific media outlets, Boxing News 24, Boxing This, Boxing That, The Zone, yeah, like, you know, all these different things that have partnerships with all these different companies, they're the ones covering it. And if you're a boxing fan, that's where you're checking. But how are you roping in the casual fan at, you know, some of the other places? And they're not doing that because unless it's something like we just saw, they're not even going to pay attention to it. You know what I mean? Like, I've been told, like, you know, uh, various different things, but I think that from what I've seen, that's the issue is that the the journalism or lack thereof around it and the storytelling around it doesn't or hasn't transcended, you know, its sort of nicheness, I guess. And where do you think the personal stories of the human interest stories can really get to people? Do you think it should be a social media blast? Do you think it should be like the HBO boxing or the 24 oh, they, seven, like Showtime? Well, like they could be everywhere. If these companies had the balls to try to go out and tell these stories, instead of worrying about just getting clicks, you know what I mean? Like we've worked at enough places where it's like, yo, just have some fucking nuts and actually go out and get these stories. You know what I mean? Like there are so many good stories, especially in that sport in particular, because you're talking about like you're not ta you're not finding a lot of boxers who graduated with master's degrees. <laughs> you're finding dudes and women, by the way, who have had to, you know, drop out of school at this age and have to make a living and balance working these two jobs. Like, you know, guys who are literally like there are jokes about people being cab drivers and that being a sort of, a, you know, not a slur, but something that's meant to resemble a tomato can, which is meant to resemble a bum, which is meant to resemble somebody who sucks at the sport. But there are legitimate guys who are, you know, uh, cab drivers who are actually competing at high levels in the sport. I remember Grady Brewer when he was on the contender season two, some people watched the contender back in the day and shit, something like that would help a reality show. That's actually like, you know, very highly consequential into people's careers. And the contender was great because not only did it get high ratings and sort of make these stars, but you have a guy, Grady Brewer, who wins a contender, wins, I think it was a quarter million or half a million dollars. And unfortunately, he got injured shortly after that and never grew out of that journeyman stage. But he was working at Goodyear. And then like like they're like you're learning these stories because these guys are on these shows because there's so much exposure to them because 
you know, people actually were like, oh, let's make people give a shit about this. Let's do good journalism and tell these good stories. And now people are just like, yo, uh, is there a cool knockout we can post clip highlight and then just get traction on it and then just move on to the next thing 45 minutes from now because we're being extorted by management so that we can get a certain amount of clips for certain things. Like it's, it's just, it's just an industry wide, uh, you know, sort of calamity of bullshit that towers over from the very top and affects everything else at the bottom. And people just don't really have the stones to go out and get these stories. And they're all over the place, literally everywhere in sports like boxing and mixed martial arts and sports in general, because all these people have different stories anyway. I also think people don't have the stones to say, Hey, people like long form. I subscribe to the athletic. I buy the newspaper. I like reading long stories. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it took me, I think 45 minutes to read the SI article the other day about putting sticky stuff on the, uh, you know, that's like a nine page story. It's really a good, you know, it was very well in depth and I enjoyed it. I don't mind watching a 30 minute, you know, bio on Brian Fonseca, you know, the next, uh, you know, Pulitzer (laughs) prize winner, but but, (laughs) like, I enjoy, I enjoy that. If, if you, if you can tell a story, it doesn't matter how long it is. And John, think about this. Like what's the, what's the thing that has blown up more than anything else in the last five years as it relates to media consumption. Podcasts. Right. And podcasts are long. Podcasts are just generally anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour. Some of the most popular ones on the planet, Joe Rogan's, for example, which, you know, I don't listen to freaking entire Joe Rogan episodes because they're three, three and a half hours long, two and a half hours long. But there are millions of people who do. You know what I mean? Like the Joe Budden podcast before, you know, the whole thing with Rory and Maul. And for that, there are a lot of people uh, not really listening to him nowadays. Same thing. You're talking about two, two and a half hours, sometimes three hour shows. Lebitard, which that's my go to show. There's an hour one, there's an hour two, there's a big suey, there is a local hour, and there's a post-game show. All in all, you're talking about roughly two-plus hours of content uh, three times a week, formerly on a daily basis when they run ESPN. And there are people who get very invested in certain things, and I think that can work the same with long-form features because, like, why do we always look forward to 30 for 30s all the time? Granted, there's a lot of production value and things like that that go into it, but that's kind of the point. Like outside the lines was created for a reason and that's been watered down. But, you know, things like E60 and ESPN's done a lot of this stuff. So I'm sort of using them as a barometer here, but there are a lot of other places that can do this, that have the resources to do this. I remember Dan Levitar saying this a long time ago and it stuck with me like ever since. He was very disappointed that, Uh, When Fox Sports 1 got started, because, you know, people forget, like, that's a relatively new-ish phenomenon as far as something that came along within the last 10 years. What did they do? They just imitated ESPN. Undisputed is literally the exact same as First Take. This show, uh, you know, Speak for Yourself is just like this show over here. And, you know, they didn't use that to sort of do the things that uh, it seems like Meadowlark is going to try to do in terms of do it, creating content in a variety of different ways, including long form. Like people care about long form. Why? Because people are still buying books. People are still watching uh, series and things of that nature. Like I don't think people are watching as many movies as before, but people are actually tuning in for, you know, series uh, on Netflix or, or Hulu or HBO that is 10 episodes and 30 minutes each, which is longer than a movie. <laughs> right. And, and I think the biggest thing that's changed is that all of those mediums that you mentioned are on demand. And because mm-hmm. they're on demand, we don't have that sense of community. Like, I'm trying to think, but last year during the last dance felt like the first time where the mm. entire sports community was watching the same thing at the same time, yeah. which I can't even tell you the last time that that happened for a non-sporting event. Mm. You know, like, you know, everyone's watching mm. the Super Bowl. You know, uh, a groundswell of the population is watching an NBA, NHL, MLB final round. I understand that. But having said that, because it's all on demand now, I think what's losing people is or at least losing these people that are in charge, these geniuses, um, that because it's on demand, it doesn't count as watching live TV. So for FS1, for ESPN, they still have to sell their advertisers on live TV. 
but in terms of the quality of content, like it'd be great to go and, and sell everything towards ESPN plus. Like I love Peyton Manning and Peyton's places. I'll watch it on ESPN plus, but I'm not going to, you know, tell my girlfriend, Oh honey, we can't leave till three o'clock because Peyton's places is on. No, because it's on demand. I'll watch it there. Right. Like that's the balance that they have to deal with because they have to deal with their live advertisers and, and filling their quota there as well as having quality content. But I just don't know how you fix that. And I think the thing that you just do is just plow through it, put as much quality content out there. People will watch it when they watch it. I mean, how many people are watching late night shows now? Are you staying up to watch Colbert, James no. Corden? Jimmy? No, the, the way people, the way most people I think are uh, consuming that it's just like what clips were interesting the very right. next morning or whatever. Same thing with SNL. I feel like most people are just going about it that way. And, you know, there is a monetization factor that I assume comes with that. But look, like all everyone's doing the same shit, which is what I continuously go back to. And it's like, I'm hoping that more places like, again, what seemingly what Metal Lark Media is going to try to do is just be different. And I think I'm hoping that they at least uh, are able to break through in a way that shows a lot of these other places what people like you and I already know is that there's a home for creativity in a way that isn't reflective of all of these places just doing it like one another and just imitating right. each other and things of that nature. So I'm hoping that they could sort of break down that wall so then other places could start being innovative and things of that nature. And then we could have a, a, a brand new or freshened up or or different media landscape because this one sucks. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, all right. Let's get to, uh, let's get to this. And, you know, it's funny, Brian, years ago, I would have said you're a diamond in the rough. You are a ground jewel, my man. Absolutely fine. 14 carat Hidalgo Heights. The victims are taking up space uh, now out on Amazon. I'm looking at it right now. Quick synopsis for those who haven't bought it yet, and you should buy it. Mine is on the way. The dead end street of Hidalgo houses, excuse me, the dead end street of Hidalgo Heights houses, four teenagers who indulge in sports as a refuge to evade their struggle to survive. Are you somebody that always wanted to delve into fiction and, you know, is it, or was this just a passion project? How did this come about? It was April of last year and COVID was really bad in New York city, really bad. So there was no chance like I was leaving my crib or anything like that. Right. Uh, a bunch of us were just like, just sort of locked down and not trying to do as many things outside. If at all, I think from April to June, I probably left my house like twice, literally twice. And in April, I just came up with the idea. Like I was, this is a story that I'm probably going to, you know, retell uh, in other interviews, but I was playing NBA Street Volume 3, which came out 15 years prior, 2005, because I just wanted to see if it worked. And I popped it in my 360 and I played a game. And then all of a sudden, like, I start creating this neighborhood because in the game, you can do that. You can make your own court and sort of create the neighborhood around it or whatever. And as I'm doing this, I come up with a name and you know, put this here. And, you know, I was making it really like working class, like, like almost poverty level. Like, you know, it, it looked like a regular park in New York city that you would sort of discard and, you know, not really, uh, uh, you know, pay attention to unless you lived in that neighborhood. And then I just got the idea. And then five minutes later, I started writing an outline for this. So I, I had like, I definitely had always wanted to write fiction because I always saw myself as more of a creative writer than a sports writer, which is what I've mostly done to this point. But I'm trying to show people like, no, like I want to write on TV shows. I want to write on video games. I want to write on, uh, you know, story campaigns on all these things I'm talking about. That's why this book also has screenwriting elements. And I also wanted to show people because again, this was written during COVID mostly that no, like a lot of this shit, you know, laterally, it's kind of like what we were talking about with media. Like, there are problems from the top down that people don't think are connected that almost always are. And I wanted to show it specifically from uh, 
our perspective, the Latino American perspective, because, you know, there are a lot of things done from other different perspectives. So I wanted to just, uh, you know, go with what I know and get into the experience of, and to be clear, like, it's not just a, a Latino American story. There's black characters, there's characters of all kinds, but a lot of the main characters just happen to be Latino. And, you know, there's a lot that comes with that because it starts with, I mean, I'm not going to give too much away, but it just sort of starts with, uh, you know, just things that we see at the top of this country. And then you're like, oh, wait, that could affect these people all the way down here in the pecking order. And it's like, yeah, like all, all of that stuff kind of does. And to be clear, like it's also going to be part of a series because I'm already planning a sequel and, uh, you know, we'll go from there. What shows, dramas, other books, forms of media did you take your inspiration from outside of uh what was it? M- uh, NBA Street, right? NBA Street right. Volume 3. Um, <laughs> other forms of media. Um, definitely The Wire, because that's something I was watching during the time, uh, during the early stages of this. I would say The Wire would be uh, one of them. Rami, which is a show on Hulu um, that is really good and is gets into like the Muslim side of things, right? Mm-hmm. and you know things of that nature and just different sort of because it's realistic fiction so di- and just different sort of like real life experiences or real life adjacent experiences like a lot of what people will read are things that have either happened to me or happened to other people or a variation of that or like I took something and was able to like add to it like create a different thing around it or whatever but yeah, just sort of being outside, you know, being around like and a lot of that took me back to my high school days because that's sort of the things that we, you know, were the, were we were going through, uh, though this is a, a more of a dramatic way of going about it. Um, but at the same time, it's like this is this is kind of what the, the experience could be on some levels. And this is what you're you know, you're it's, you're when you're in high school, you're worried about how you're going to balance everything and what's my future going to be. And I, you know, I just want to be a kid and play sports. I want to talk about porn stars with my friends and all these different things. Like this is what these kids are doing and they're trying to navigate through all this shit. And it's very, it's very difficult, you know? So, and I think that that's sort of one of the other things about it. It's like, we don't recognize how difficult uh, a lot of this stuff could be on teenagers. You know what I mean? And them trying to navigate through, you know, all these different things and them having to deal with because we we look at like a lot of NBA players, a lot of NFL athletes, but just people in general, like a lot. Everyone's had a different upbringing and classism is a real thing. That a lot of people have had to experience. So I just wanted to like really uh, use that as something to continuously go back to, because I think people should be able to you know, identify with that in some way. And I think that this is something that, you know, will resonate with a lot of people, particularly if you read it a second time and sort of like, oh, okay, this is how this, whatever. Because on the first time when I consume something, I don't, I, I don't catch everything if it's like, you know, something that's very layered and this is something that's very layered. So I'm hoping that people will give it a go. And then, you know, if they feel it, give it another go. And then they'll really see like, oh, okay, this is how a lot of things unfolded, et cetera, et cetera. Is there an Omar type character in the book? Ooh, is there an Omar type character in a book? Um, Omar's the most badass character of any drama in the history of dramas, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> ahead of his time in a lot of ways. Like I was late to The Wire, but, you know, which is better because like I, The Wire started uh, season one came out. I was eight years old. I should not have been watching no. The Wire at that <laughs> no. age. It was off air. I was 14. Like I got to it really late, but I got to it at a point in my life where I could understand it. You know what I mean? Like if I had saw that even before I got to college, I probably wouldn't have under, I would have, I would have understood like a bunch of it, but not in the way that I would now as an adult, because you learn as to the, what The Wire says, all the pieces matter. All the pieces are connected. Everything is sort of interconnected. So this is a, uh, we have a this is not the wire necessarily um but it's something that uh is in that similar you know i try to make everything connect in that way now is there an omar in the story i don't 
know. I would have to. There's we definitely don't have like, you know, a badass gay dude who will fuck you up on the drop of a dime. You know what I mean? Et cetera, et cetera. Like <laughs> that's one of the most ballsy characters ever or whatever. But we do have, uh, you know, there are a couple of uh, characters who are um, not quite Omar's, but, uh, you know, there could there may be a Bodie in there. Okay. <laughs> I'll say that there might be a, a Rawls or a Rawls of Jace. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? There might be there might be a Kima and Kima, somebody I loved in the wire. And, uh, you know, is there is there this one character who is not quite bubbles, but has a path mm-hmm. to sort of becoming that. So, I mean, we'll see. But yeah. OK. Yeah. <laughs> my my favorite scene and it's definitely underrated is when Omar takes a stand. Um, and that's that, <laughs> wearing his tie and everything. <laughs> it, was, it was just I, great. I don't know. Oh, actually, no, I do have my favorite scene because I've told Dexter this before. Friend of ours. Um, my favorite scene was Wallace waking up and he you you realize like he's taking care of all these different kids and yeah. he's sort of like i think it's on youtube as wallace as parent because i've went back and watched it like several times because i'm like yo this that really tells you a lot without much dialogue which is something you can do on uh tv or whatever which you know one day i would like to uh you know see hidalgo heights on that screen which is why i copyrighted it copy wrote it I don't know what the correct terminology is as a writer, even um, as long as the legal department knows, that's all that matters. You know what I mean? Like I have that taken care of and, you know, down the line, like that's something that I'm definitely going to try to do, but you know, obviously got to try to, you know, sell some damn books first. <laughs> well, and my next question to you was who did the art? Cause you mentioned a lot of, a lot of this is like, you know, from your childhood or your adolescence and like, I'm not kidding, Brian, like this looks like, the hottest game of PS2. <laughs> right. It really does. Like, I'm going to play this on PS2 when I get home from school. Yeah, that's sort of the, the inspiration. I mean, I, <laughs> that's sort of the inspiration for it. I worked with uh, Mel Projects uh, Publishing. I self-publish it through them. So, you know, I retain a lot of those things. But, you know, they help me with editorial artwork and things of that nature. And, uh, yeah, like, there were a couple different concepts that we discussed. That was one that I really liked. And one of the things that I noted it when I got it back was like, yeah, this is this is what I was thinking, because I had sent over uh, I had all those characters you see there. I had created them in video games first, sent the pictures over, and then we worked on the artwork from there. Um, they look like I've gotten back, uh, you know, GTA old school, like GTA mm-hmm. three or something like that. And the Sims, that's what I've mostly heard, which, you know, two games that, uh, are very highly regarded. And that's, that's more or less what I was going for. Like, I would like, I would like, if I, if I, you know, uh, have like, and I am going to have more like fiction novels, I think, especially if they sell, like, <laughs> hopefully that'll be the case, but that's something I'm definitely going to want to continue to do. And I would like if every single one of them had a video game influence cover, because that's something like that's 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 who I am. And that's where I get a lot of my creativity from, I would say. That was going to be my last question to you. And I'm mm-hmm. always curious when I speak to authors about this, especially the way that everyone consumes media now. Do you write a book in hopes that it'll be picked up for a screenplay, a video mm. game, a made for TV movie, a box office hit? Like, do you write to that or are you just writing, hey, I think this is a cool story. I want to put pen to paper and it is what it is. I don't see a scenario where I write something and I don't want it to potentially be a series or a movie or, you know, something or or multiple different things. You know what I mean? Because there are certain things that like they have a musical and a show and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it'd be interesting to see this as a musical one day, but, and I would obviously, the main thing is I would like to be involved, which is why I have a copyright, but, <laughs> and retained ownership. But I, you know, cause I think it's something that like a lot of people will be able to identify with. And a lot of people will like need to hear in some regard. And for me, absolutely. Like I see this one day being a television series, whether it be on HBO or Hulu or Netflix or whatever, um, or Showtime, 
or whomever, FX, whatever. Like, I see that happening at some point down the line, hopefully not too far down because, you know, <laughs> let's get this money now. But <laughs> at the same time, like, yeah, that's uh, that that I definitely had in mind because the first version of it actually had more dialogue. And then I had to remember, like, hey, like, this is going to start off as a book after all. Like, you want to narrate a little bit more here. So I found a balance. And that's why some of the dialogue is written out as a sort of su- uh, something you would see in a screenplay that's intentional. And that's why it's like an unconventional hybrid in some ways, but it's a narrative that I feel like is going to be, you know, um, smooth for people to follow along with. And, you know, yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely see this as being a-, a series one day. And that was uh, one of the goals I had in doing it. It's sort of a long-term plan, something that I was able to do because of COVID and taking advantage of it. Um, because I definitely wanted to leave the pandemic with something with something that I knew I could carry on for years and years and years. And I think this idea could set off a, a, a whole lot. It's going to take a while. You know what I mean? Like there, it's going to take a while because I'm not really at that sort of level where it's going to be an instant hit. But I think that in due time, like people are going to, people are going to catch on and, um, you know, uh, we'll be able to, you know, share these stories and tell them, different ways and tell other stories because I have an idea for something else that I probably don't see as a series, but I probably see it as more of a movie, but we'll, you know, we'll see. I have, I have a lot of ideas floating around and just, you know, need the funding to be able to put them to practice. So go buy that book. <laughs> Definitely go buy that book. Hidalgo Heights, the victims are taking up space. Brian Fonseca, the author, Mel Projects Publishing. I just want you to know, and like, I need to do a better job of letting you know, off camera, anytime I see you or Dexter pop up on my timeline, I smile and I get so inspired. And I, I, I just, I love the two people that you guys have become while staying the same people that I met years ago. Sure. And I mean, Brian, you're just killing it, my man. Like you are the best. And anytime I would see you on MSG, find an article on Deadspin or, you know, whatever the local papers, always grinned ear to ear. It's a pleasure, my man. You're the best. I appreciate that a lot. And, you know, uh, you know, Dexter's my guy. I've, I thanked him like very early on in the book. You'll see it. He's one of the first people I thank uh, because he was like the first person I told about this idea. You know what I mean? Like if I have something like that, he's usually somebody that I go to and vice versa. And we actually just saw each other for the first time since pre COVID uh, the other day, like literally Saturday, like we were me, him and a couple other people, we got together in the city had dinner caught up face to face and it, it, you know it was great to see him again and he's in great shape now which uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> some people may have left the pandemic or we're still in the pandemic let's be clear some people may have you know may get out of the pandemic one way but that dude uh he he's definitely been in the gym or been in the house or the the home gym i'll say <laughs> hey man maybe there's a character afterwards like you know you base it on him or just like rip dexter i don't know oh, i don't oh, know if the world's they- ready for there's a, there's a character that sort of embodies Dexter in, in Hidalgo Heights. He doesn't know it yet because he has it like he has he just started it. He just got his copy sent to the crib. But he'll, I want to see if he comes across it and he'll pick it up. He should be able to pick it up right away, though. <laughs> it's the one person like in the projects with the camera and the backpack. And... <laughs> I won't give it away. <laughs> All right. We'll definitely get the book out there. I'm going to put the link in the description. Brian, you're the best, my man. Thanks, Sean. Always appreciate it.